0: Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we're joined by community pastor Ian Simpkins as we continue our series, Turn the Page. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m., and now also on Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. We hope to see you there. Well, good morning, community. How are you this morning. Good to see you right on. A special welcome to our digital audience. Uh, can you believe that Christmas is almost here? Is anyone like a, a teeny bit panicked right now? Who's, who's going to be joining me at Walmart tonight after... Right? <laughs> yeah, show of hands. Great. Um, I was thinking about, though, all, of the, all the stress and all the anxiety, but also all the anticipation and the wonder of Christmas. And it's interesting, looking back on the Christmases of my childhood, you experience them different as kids, but I also remember like certain gifts really decided if you were in the in-crowd or the out-crowd. Anyone, anyone know what I'm talking about? Like when you swap stories at school the week after, once you got back from break, there really was like, a, like an in and out of gifts. And I, I was reminiscing about some of those gifts that for me really kind of, they encapsulate this idea of like being in the in-crowd. Maybe you can relate to some of these. The first gift that I thought of was pogs. Anyone here have pogs as a kid? Yeah, me neither, totally. Um, I was really late to the party with Pogs because uh, my parents thought they were really bad news, and then they found a loophole, and so they bought me, um, like, evangelism Pogs. <laughs> like, Christianity-inspired Pogs, which always made for, like, a weird conversation because I had, like, my, like my Jesus-slammer, and something about slamming Jesus at other people's Pogs just felt r- wrong. It didn't feel right. Um, another toy, though, that I, I remember always wanting was a, a Talkboy. Do you guys remember a talk boy? Those things, for some reason, just seemed endlessly cool to me, not just because Kevin McAllister had one. I never actually got one, by the way, Uh, but I always kind of held that up. People that walked around with talkboys, like, it's like a status symbol. They, like, hang it from their belt. They were awesome. Um, There's maybe no better, like, iconic gift, though, at least for me in my childhood, than an NES system. An NES, if you had... How many of you still play this? Anybody? (laughs) Hipsters in the room. Outstanding. Um... We were about ten years late to that party, so by the time that we got one, they weren't cool anymore. But man, I'd play Duck Hunt this afternoon if anyone wanted to play. Like th- that, to me, was you were just in if you had an NES system. But it wasn't just toys either, though, right? It had a lot to do with clothing as well. How many of you remember Jinko jeans? Anyone remember Jinko jeans? <laughs> <laughs> it's a real photograph of me. Um, just kidding. People are like, "What? No." Jinko jeans were such a step, especially like in the, in the punk rock scene, but I was a drummer, though. Imagine trying to wear those pants and play the drums. Like, it'd get caught up in the gears, and it was just really, it was awful. And if it wasn't Jinko jeans, the other option was parachute pants. Anyone remember <laughs> parachute pants, right? In Detroit, we called them skids. I have no idea why. And just to prove to you that I actually did have them, here's a photograph of me with my brothers, and uh, they're... <laughs> See, even my younger brother, like, doesn't want to be seen with me. I don't know, by the way, what look this is. Like, the really confused 1980s mobster. The turtleneck slicked-haired back was not a good look for me at all. But we've all, we've all probably held on to gifts that, like, meant a lot to us. So we, we really, really wanted that one particular thing. In fact, wh- why don't you turn to someone next to you, right? Now, tell, tell someone near you what that one gift when you were a kid was. If I could just have this gift. Go ahead and tell somebody near you. I'm not hearing a lot of pogs out there. Not a lot. No jinko cheese. <laughs> I'm hearing some really funny entries. Now, I, I bring that up for a specific reason. Because every culture, at every time in history, has had ways to determine the in and the out, the haves and the have nots, the ins and the outs. This is not a new idea that we would define the most and the least. In fact, maybe some of us have experienced one of those three categories sometime this last year where you felt like you were in the bad category, the bad option. Maybe you feel like you're in the have-not category this morning. Because when you look at the people around you, either your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, you just seem to always feel like you're lacking, like you're missing something. Maybe... Maybe this morning you feel like you're in the out category. Maybe for you there's like a certain group of friends, a certain circle of friends that you, you just can't seem to break into. But maybe, maybe today you feel like in the least category. When you look around you, you feel like you're at, the, you're at the bottom of the rung. Everyone else seems to be above you. Whatever you feel like you are in today, you're not alone. From the beginning of time, we have created categories to determine the haves from the have-nots, the most and the least, the in and the out. In fact, this isn't a new concept at all. All the way back to the first century Judah, this was already happening. There was one profession, one particular group of people um, who were always unmistakably at the bottom. They were the least in all, almost every way imaginable. They were considered the lower class, unskilled, and untrustworthy. In fact, this particular group of people, they did a job that was seen to be done by children, that a child could accomplish. So if you were an adult that did this job, that that was really a sign that you were a failure in this culture. In fact, your testimony wouldn't even be considered valid in a court of law. So who are these unfortunate outcasts? The shepherds, that's right. The shepherds. The lowest of the low, the bottom of the rung, always reminded that they were the have-nots. They were the outs. They were the least of the least. So what would like a typical day for shepherds look like? Well, Luke records it this way. It says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Okay, so where does he say that the shepherds are sleeping or living? In a home, in a hotel, in an Airbnb? Now, they're out in the fields with what? With the sheep. And all that comes with their sheepness. That's where they live. That's where they reside. And I imagine for them, it's this constant reminder that they are a failure. That things did not pan out the way that they perhaps hoped it would. Reminded every day that they were the least. Now, I imagine as they were watching their sheep, They probably just assumed it was like any other night shift, right? Like they were just sort of out there with the sheep, uh, hoping they didn't have to fight off a bear or a lion, hoping that their, you know, rabies shots were current. Whatever that is, they they likely expected nothing to happen. But look what happens here, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, at Christmas time, it's easy for us to like miss the significance of this because a lot of us know the story, But I want you to to enter into the emotionality of a shepherd that you expect nothing good to happen in your life. An angel appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. I would add, understandably so. This was not what they expected to happen. So they're freaked out. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. My my news isn't for an elite class. It's for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So as if the announcement from the angel wasn't intense enough, he then invites like a backup band to join him as like one sort of final punch. They were not in any way, shape, or form expecting this to happen. They were the least. They were the lowest. They were the outs. They were the have-nots. And all of a sudden... God sets in motion his plan to redeem the world. He breaks into our world through the person of Jesus. The infinite became an infant. He stepped down from eternity and entered humanity, and the world would never be the same. Now, as amazing as this announcement is, I think it's just as amazing to whom the announcement is given. We know the story so we anticipate every year the angel, of course, is going to go to the shepherds. But to give news like this, to declare that the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, would be coming, you would not likely give that announcement first to shepherds, to the lowest of low, the failures of their culture. You would, you would talk to kings and rulers, but this God at the very beginning of this story makes an announcement to the have-nots, to the outs to the least. The have nots are honored, the outs are brought in, and the least discover that they are loved. Now, the shepherds were likely overwhelmed. I imagine that kind of news would startle you at the very least. But look what happens here in verse 15. It says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, What the heck was that? No, I'm just kidding. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, great idea, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. So this happens, they turn to each other, I imagine and think, what was that? And they say, let's go, let's go see what was just declared to us. Now, this this story, I think, tells us something incredible about Jesus as well, because many of us know that he doesn't remain a baby, that actually grows up to be a man, a man that would change the face of existence as we know it. And when Jesus entered this world, people were always drawn to him, right? Now, if you have the power to multiply food and walk on water, that's, that's understandable. Now, there's a lot of things that drew people to Jesus, the power of his words, his miracles, but also the gospel writers record that it was the goodness of his love. In fact, later in the New Testament, there's a verse that I've always loved that says, it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. That's opposite of what a lot of us were taught, right? It's God's loving kindness that leads someone to fully surrender their heart to God. Not, not shame, not abuse, not beating them over the head with the Bible. He says that the thing, the engine of this whole thing is his, his unmistakable, unconditional love. People were drawn to Jesus because he loved, and he loved in very peculiar ways. Because remember, there still were in and out, most and least, have and have not. J- Jesus seems to make it a habit to like break societal norms and barriers and classifications. They don't seem to apply to him. He's often kicking down walls that culture had built up. And John, one of Jesus' closest friends, Records a number of beautiful stories of Jesus doing exactly this. John chapter four, Jesus encounters a woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman, and there's a number of things going on here that are easy to miss. One, a Jew would never interact with a Samaritan. They, it wasn't like a turf war, they despised one another. It's a well-documented fact that they hated one another. So for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan was a big deal, but also was a big deal for a man to talk to a woman, particularly who was alone out in public. And he speaks to her. He says that he knows that she's had five husbands, likely cast aside by these five men, carrying all sorts of guilt and shame and heartache. And Jesus looks her in the eye and affirms her worth. He looks her in the eye and declares that she's loved, that she's known. Jesus loves this woman that everyone else had rejected. In John chapter five, Jesus encounters a man who had suffered from a disease for 38 years and he was unable to walk. I want you to imagine not being able to walk for 38 years. Uh, Jesus heals him, has compassion on him, and the guy's life has changed Forever. Jesus loves this man that other people ignored, that everyone else just sort of overlooked. In John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man born blind. And even the disciples, they assume it's either his sin or the sin of his parents that has left him blind. And Jesus says, that's not what's going on here. And he heals this man, and he affirms him, And his life is never the same. Jesus loves this man that everyone else had blamed. Everyone else assumed he deserves this. He had it coming. Jesus loves the one that everyone else had blamed. Even John himself, his very identity was redefined by how Jesus Loved him. Years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, when John sat down to pen his gospel, um, he had a pretty impressive resume. He was one of the first followers of Jesus. He was a leader in the early church. He, uh, he was an apostle. He was a disciple. He was an author. He was a teacher. He had a lot going on. There were a lot of things. There were a lot of reasons for John to put himself in the most category. But look, look at how John defines himself defines himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Before status, before title, before accomplishment, he saw his primary identity as the one Jesus loved. I think that is absolutely radical, and yet pretty counterintuitive for us, right? I think it's one thing for us to, to sit in a church, sit in a room and kind of nod our head to that truth, but it, The core of our heart, though, don't we define ourselves by what we do or what we've done, who we're around, who we're with, what kind of social circle we have, what kind of title or status or dollar amount. It's so easy for us to see ourselves as anything other than the one Jesus loves. But this transformed John's life. The identity that he holds most dear is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So I have to ask this morning. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? And answer that question honestly. Where do you really draw your identity from? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? If someone were to ask, tell me about you, how would you answer? How do you see yourself? I think some of us work long hours and we put people on the back burner, right? It's it's not just that we want to do a good job. It's actually to the level of, obsession. We're obsessed with achievement. Maybe we would say, I'm the one who must succeed. That's my identity, the one who must succeed. Others of us, we we try to make everyone else happy, right? We don't want anyone to ever be disappointed with us or what we've done. So maybe you would answer, the one who must please. Maybe for you, it's all about how you look in the mirror. And all sorts of time and energy and money goes into making sure that you have this image that you achieve that you want. Maybe for you, you would answer, I'm the one who has to look good. I have to look good. Others of us, we're not content unless a certain person is in our life and they're happy to be. there. Maybe you would answer this morning, the one who has to feel wanted, who must be wanted. Some of us, we pour ourselves out in countless good deeds. Maybe we would answered this way, I'm the one that has to serve, that must serve, I must always be serving. And maybe some of us, maybe you identify with the shepherds. You, you feel like you're just the lowest on the rung. You're constantly be overlooked. Maybe you're the one, you would say, I'm the one who doesn't matter. Regardless of how you answer that question, I think that God's word for us today is that before any of those accomplishments or failures, before any of the good or bad that we can do, God sees us and he says, that's the one that I love. And it's so easy for us to be distracted by finding our identity in our work or in our relationships or in our accomplishments or our bank statements. We've all felt the weight of that. And maybe you feel the weight of that this morning. Now, to be honest, this this idea of feeling like the least it's particularly close to home for me. Um, when I was born, there was some complications in the delivery room. I was born with a birth defect, like a brain disorder that causes my eyes to shake back and forth all the time. All the time. My world is always shaking. And at first, as a kid, I didn't really know that I was different. In fact, I thought maybe it was like a superpower, like I could see through fences. I cannot. I um, <laughs> but it didn't really bother me. I didn't really know any different. I remember the first time a friend was sitting across the table from me and he looked up and he said, oh, can you look somewhere else, man? You're freaking me out. You're freaking me out. And that kind of, that planted a seed, not just of of sadness for me, but also anger. Anger that would eventually grow to bitterness, either the doctors or my parents, or eventually God, and i 'll be honest, I, I kind of shoved those feelings down, but I, I spent a lot of my, a lot of my years really feeling like the least God could never use someone as broken as me as busted up as me. Now, I learned to cope with it, and I came up with different ways to kind of w- work around it in fact there there was a couple of things about it that, that triggered and made it worse. They would shake worse um, if I was dizzy, if I was tired, and if I was lying, which my parents loved. Um, <laughs> it's like this built-in lie detector, right? Like, where were you last night? I was at John's. Uh, and they're like, look me in the eye. And I'm like, <laughs> go to your room. How do they know every time? So unbeknownst to me, this, this anger, this bitterness, this sadness this of feeling like the least, was just sort of always there. I don't think I realized to what extent. Fast forward my senior year of college. We take a trip to India with some friends from school. And we work with this orphanage in this little village in the northeast. And I don't know if you've ever traveled to another country, but every country I've ever been to, kids always want you to spin them, right? It's the universal sign for spin me, Right? And so I'm picking up kid after kid and I'm spinning, I'm spinning, I'm spinning. If you remember, dizziness is, is one of the triggers. So I'm spinning kids so fast and so often that it finally gets, it's too much. My eyes are shaking so bad, I like fall to the ground. And I fall to my knees. And these two girls out in front of me, they look at my eyes. And they gasp. And they run away and all of that pain all of that anger came rushing back see god i'm i'm the least even here in india i'm the least and then i look and the two girls that had ran away are now dragging a third girl toward me this girl right here and i'm thinking well that's just mean now right they're bringing this girl to come see the freak american So they bring this girl, and they throw her down in front of me, and i look into her eyes, and she looks into my eyes, and I see that they're shaking back and forth, and in that moment, it's like the heavens tore open. It was as if God said to both of us in that moment, you say you're least. I say you're loved. And we didn't speak each other's language. She didn't care about any of my accomplishments, any of the things that I had done. She jumped into my arms and we just cried together. That moment could have lasted forever as far as I was concerned. And we stayed at that orphanage for a couple of weeks. And after I'd left, the people running the orphanage sent me a letter. And they said, We can't expect you to know this. But that girl, little Vipna, before you came, was always at the back of every line, always playing by herself in the corner. But since your visit, since you were here with us, she holds her head up high. And says, my eyes are like Uncle Ian's eyes. Both of us had believed the lie that we were least that God could never work in or through us. And in that moment, years of anger and sadness and bitterness just seemed to start to melt away. It was in that moment that God was saying, "No one has the right to define you except the one who made you, and I call you loved. You are loved." How do you define yourself? What do you say about yourself? What if together as a church, as a family, before any task, any title, any bank statement, how successful our kids are, our parents are, what if we saw each other as the one Jesus loves? What if we whispered that to each other when we forget? What if we looked each other in the eye and reminded each other you're not alone, you're the one Jesus loves? Loves. That's your primary identity. That's the truest thing about you. You are the one Jesus loves. What this means for all of us is that we can breathe. It's a place of freedom. We get to hop off the treadmill of of trying to be smart enough holy enough, successful enough. We get to opt out of the rat race because in Christ, our identity isn't achieved. It's received freely. It's given freely in Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That in all of our striving, and all of our doing, and all of our obsessing, and maybe it's just a script in your head that is telling you you're not good enough. You'll never be enough. Jesus says, I couldn't disagree more. You are the one I love. Would you pray with me, please? God, my, my guess is whether we feel like we're in a mountaintop or a valley today, we, we've all believed a lie about ourselves, that we are the sum of what we can do, what we can accomplish. But God, would you remind us like a loving father? You love us fully and completely without condition not because we're useful to you, but because you're our father, you're our daddy. God, whatever identity it is that we've been carrying, that we've been listening to far too long, help us to see our primary identity as the one you love. May that transform the way that we live and love and serve. God, help us to step more fully into the truth of that identity. God, we thank you and we love you. And we pray all these things in the loving name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.